0: And listeners, you are about to do it again. It is another week of The Learning Curve. We are here. I'm here with Gerard Robinson, of course. Woo-hoo. Phenomenal. Oh, we've, he even gets like a whoop. Gerard, are you are you hooting and hollering because you were pardoned today? Today? <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's going on?
1: <laughs> so you actually, yeah, I was pardoned. I uh, feel good now. So, yeah, thank you for uh, putting me on front street.
0: You're no, you're no longer in danger, my friend.
1: I no mean, longer in danger.
0: Watching the news. Of course, we've just um we've just um Martin Luther King Day was yesterday. We're gonna talk about that with our next guest. Today is uh what's what's the date today? Oh my husband's birthday is tomorrow, so I should know this. January nineteenth, twenty twenty one, which means tomorrow's inauguration day, and which means that today, if you're watching the news, um a lot of pardons are being handed down. I'm curious to know though, Gerard, because I was reading that um that some of the pardons or a good number of the pardons that are being handed down are at the um, suggestion of many um, criminal justice reform groups, which, and of course you, you know more about that than almost anybody. So I'm wondering: have you been watching? Do you have thoughts on what's going on?
1: So in all seriousness, uh, pardons are very um, politically driven uh, factor for a lot of people. I actually did not take a look at the list of the cur- current pardons. I will say that I actually know two people. Uh, who were pardoned uh, by President Donald Trump, one in the last wave. In fact, I sent her a note and uh, she was pretty involved with me and a group of others on criminal justice reform. And yes, there are criminal justice reform advocates who submit names, uh, but that's true under all administrations. Different groups will send in names. And with every president, some of them are very uh, controversial uh, and they're considered the last minute pardons. And they upset a lot of people, but they also bring a lot of joy to people. Um, yeah. I won't weigh in into some of the politics, but uh, I do know two people and uh, their lives are very different today.
0: Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we just, it seems like everybody's watching the number, but, but you know, I'm, I'm sure that some of them were, were quite important. And, of course, tomorrow, here we go into a, into a big day, I think some of us might feel like the nation's holding its holding its breath and i'm sure for for our listeners who are in dc it probably looks and feels like a very different place right now but we are hoping for um for uh, a calm peaceful day tomorrow and i know that, that many of us we've been waiting like for for the world to just change in one day right like suddenly mm-hmm. Suddenly, we're all going to be vaccinated, and everything's going to be fine. Probably not going to happen, dear listeners. Just want to put that on your radar. But, um, but I think like we can hope for, um, for tomorrow's inauguration to be uh, to be everything that this country deserves. Have best- you ever attended an inauguration? I have. I attended President Bill Clinton's inauguration when I was a Senate page. In drumroll, nineteen
1: ninety-two. Well, drumroll back at you. I was at the same one.
0: Well, there you go. See? Yep. And of course, you, of course, Gerard, you're, you're so much younger than I am that you were probably what? You were like a middle school student at the
1: time. Yes, yes. I was escorted by my parents <laughs> there. And uh, yeah, it was great. I uh, went to a lot of balls. Uh, I had friends who worked for uh, the transition team for Clinton and uh, met some good people, met him uh, while I was there as well and uh, danced to uh, Fleetwood Mac. They were one of the. uh, In fact, I have pictures of them on stage. Are you going to sing?
0: Can you sing? Can you give us a little taste?
1: No, because I don't remember exactly which song they played. Yeah,
0: I was. I really (laughs) thought you could do some great. Come on. (laughs) No, but I mean, what a! It's you know, for anybody who's ever had the the privilege, the opportunity to attend, it's a really wonderful thing. This year's, I'm sure, will be quite quite a lot different. (laughs) No, no, no big balls. We're going to have to wait a little while for that. Yep. So, all right. But some, you know what, some other big news have, I mean, this is like, listen, there's not a slow day. Uh, We we can have a whole week that goes by uh, between recording these uh, episodes and a lot of things to pick and choose from in terms of what we're going to talk about, but this one's a big one. So last week we discussed just a little bit about the the federal stimulus package that Congress passed, but now we've got news on on President-elect, soon-to-be President Joe Biden's um, own proposal for for K to 12 and higher education relief. So he's proposing um, 130 billion additional dollars in relief for. For K to 12 institutions, $35 billion um, for institutions of higher education. I'm gonna focus mostly on K to 12, as you know, that's my area, Gerard. But mm-hmm. this is, you know, there's some there's some good stuff in here. Like in, in addition to the things that schools need to safely reopen, um the, the emphasis here really is on reopening, um, you know, such as more PPE, more building space for social distancing, like all of those things that we already know. There is uh, money in here for things. things. Things like summer school and tutoring to help catch kids up. Um, There's also going to be what they're calling a COVID-19 educational equity challenge grant, which is a grant for state and local agencies to engage, and I like this because parents are on the list (laughs) to engage parents, educational organizations, community organizations, all with an eye to addressing COVID learning loss through an equity lens. Um, And then there's also a $5 billion set aside in this package that's being proposed for um, what they're calling the hardest hit that governors could leverage. So this is interesting because it's an attempt to focus on students who have been most impacted by the pandemic. And the reason I say this is interesting because the the policy person in me is thinking like, we have some information about that, but it's still a really hard thing to wrap our arms around. Like, how do you how do you qualify or quantify who is hardest hit? Doesn't always, as we might assume, break down along lines of income. Um, it, you know, some some kids mm-hmm. have, some kids who uh, might be in a lower income bracket have actually had, as we we've done stories on this show about some charter schools and other other district schools private schools that are serving lower income individuals that are kicking it out of the park they're doing a better job um so i think that we need to be i I hope that we can watch this and be really clear eyed about who indeed has been hardest hit um are we going to define that just as kids that haven't had access to -to face-to-face learning maybe are we going to define that as kids that you know um had learning loss before the pandemic and make the assumption that it's been exacerbated. I don't know, but I'm going to be really interested to watch this see if and how it rolls out and, um, and you know, what States would do with it. What do you think?
1: Never let anyone tell you that the, there's no money in education. (laughs) Um, You know, there was already a lot of money before COVID-19. We just had a $1.4 trillion package Uh, nine hundred billion of that set aside for COVID relief. Of that, you know, you've got what over fifty million for K twelve, another twenty two, I believe, for higher ed. You know, two point one or so billion set aside for private schools. For the package you just mentioned, did they do the same thing and leave private school tuition off the table, in terms Uh of? Qualify, That's my qualify. read
0: so far. I'm betting that my, I'm betting that some of our listeners could correct me, but yeah, I didn't read a darn thing about private schools yet. Um, and I think I think
1: one of the things about just the hypocrisy of that is huh. when did it become unpopular uh, in this situation for Democrats not to give poor people money?
0: You know, Gerard. Um, yeah, let's. <laughs> let's go there because it is wildly unpopular. And I would argue, I think, as we talked a little bit about last week, that even this most recent set aside for private schools is I'm I really worry that it's not going to do much to help private school families at all.
1: These families, a lot of the families to qualify for our uh, charter schools, frankly, charter schools, but we're talking about private. So a lot of the families to qualify for uh, voucher programs, for tax credit scholarships, even for ESAs. Let's talk about vouchers and tax credit scholarships. I lived in Milwaukee for two years. I moved there to work in what was still to be one of the most interesting cities in the country. At the time, this was 2004-06, working with Dr. Howard Fuller at Marquette University at the Institute for the Transformation of Learning. You know, to qualify for the program, you know, at that time you had to be uh, at or below 185% of poverty. It wasn't a program for rich people. We look at the tax credit program in Florida, the same thing. A number of these children, not all, but a number of them qualify for food stamps. Uh, They qualify for health-related benefits for families who can't afford to pay for medical services. Some of them are involved in the Section 8 housing program. That is the largest voucher program in the country. In fact, voucher is in the name. And there are just a number of programs that our families qualify for. For any other terms, we say they need money to help them out. And yet, when it comes time to pull their children out of a public school, for a host of reasons, all of it isn't because the public school was bad. Some parents wanted just different things. They go to a private school, and you're now having them pull from their meager income to pay tuition. Now, someone will say, well, that was their choice. Well, <coughs> we give poor people money for all kinds of choices they make, uh, from uh, life all the way to housing. But somehow we want to then we say that's taking public money away. That's just one of the issues I just find hypocritical. But, hey, that's me.
0: Well, of course. And many people don't have a choice as to where they live, which means then they don't have a choice as to where their kids attend school unless they have access to one of these programs that you're talking about. And I tell you what, there are very few uh, universal eligibility private school choice programs, I mean, Almost every single one to a T is designed for students who meet certain income thresholds and or students with special educational needs. And even in those that are universal, it is not, you know, it's not like uh, Jeff Bezos' kids are using these. So this, it's a great myth. We've got a lot of work to do because I'll also call your attention to the fact that more and more polls are showing that it's Democrats. Hello. <laughs> it's Democrat's that support this more, which makes sense, which makes sense. It's just that this became the most political issue and mm-hmm. Dems have gotten it wrong. Um, but you know, you and I can do, I mean, how long could we go on about this Hours.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought it up and it's something to, uh, to pay attention to, but you know, you have families out there who really are struggling to keep uh, their children in a school of their choice that could be one of faith or even independent, Uh, a non-sectarian private school, but to just, you know, give out money, turn on the spigot, uh, but tell the others that they have to go and pound sand, I just think is unfair in a pandemic. You know, where is the, uh, well, I'll leave it at that. Hmm. My story is also about education and also about funding, but at a different level. So the uh, U.S. Government Accountability Office this month released a report on K-12 education And there was a focus on exactly what states are doing as it relates to uh, Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, I was honored to be a part of a 45-member national panel of experts. I was pulled together by Bellwether Education Partners and by the Collaboration for Student Success. Some years ago, we uh, divided up 51 plans, and we looked at everything from A to Z. And I can't name the the state application I looked at. But uh, it was just good to look at this report because it's pretty thorough on not only spending but also dissecting exactly what states are doing as it relates to some requirements for ESSA. So let's take Table Three: Action States Required Taking to Help School Districts Develop School-Level Need Assessments. Assessments always a big issue in any state. And so, for example, when you know how many states uh, worked one-on-one with the district to do this, I'm glad to say all 50. How many states provided the district uh, on communicating efforts about how to talk about this? Were 44. How many facilitated peer-to-peer sharing among districts using working groups, listservs, interface 32? When it, uh, As we look at how many uh, states uh, provided support to districts on using resources from regional education laboratories or comprehensive centers Only 22, and I say only 22 uh, because our rails, as we call them, are really important institutions that really are regionally focused. Uh, State Department of Ed, of course, very important, Federal Department of Ed, but we created rails in part to give regions an opportunity to do a deeper focus on five, six, or seven states. Uh, come under jurisdiction. For a host of reasons, we don't use wells enough, and I think we should, not only for research, but for policy purposes. And there's more in here. And what I like most about this report is I can walk through, easy to read, but they're giving me a snapshot of the number of states, but also the percentage of uh, counties in some instances or school systems that are actually taking great action. So I'm glad to see this report. and It's one I would recommend that policymakers, scholars, Everyday people as well should read because when it was uh, reauthorized going back to 2015, first time we had reauthorized that bill since we had with uh, No Child Left Behind, which of course goes back to 1965 with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Just think it's important for all the billions that we spend, we should figure out exactly what our states are doing, particularly now given the pandemic.
0: Yeah, so, Trevor, I'm curious, and I admittedly, I did not do my homework, I have not read the report yet. Been a little busy, but um, do you feel after having the experience of being part of a, you you know, a group that that vetted this and after reading this report, do you feel confident that most states are sort of on target for what they're supposed to be doing under ESSA? Are they just going through the motions and ticking boxes? I've been, you know, hearing different things about the extent to which we think ESSA even – matters right now in the context of everything that's been going on in the past year?
1: It's a little bit of everything. So pre-COVID, um, states traditionally will check boxes. And not that it's a bad thing, uh, but that those are things you have to do in order to trigger not only funding, but make sure you're not out of uh, sync with the federal government. Um, others took it a step further. They actually went back to their plan and said, we were going to hold 15 or 16 town hall meetings um, to discuss what's working right, what's not. Some did, some did not. Um, Now, with the change in administration going to Trump, uh, Secretary DeVos and her team uh, made a number of changes some people like, a number of changes some people did not. And so some states were trying to wait for more guidance. Uh, Some will say the guidance coming out of um, this administration was slower than the previous administration. So states may, in fact, would have gone faster if they received more green lights they thought were actually accurate. Uh, you also couple that with a number of lawsuits uh, that were hurled uh, <laughs> at the Department of Education. So there's some internal dynamics that slow down the process. I'll be the first to tell you that some of the hardest working people in the country work in state departments of education. And yes, having been in that role, uh, we find unique ways of checking the box, but also making sure that we, we move at a speed that works for us. Uh, so it takes a little bit of everything now with COVID in place now with possibly new. Uh, Secretary uh, coming on board, uh, he'll have an opportunity to move forward with this. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being everything is all right, 1 being everything is not. Weeding this, I'd probably say we're at a strong 7.
0: Yeah, well, that's heartening. Yeah. That's heartening, as is the phrase unique ways to check the box Yes, <laughs> I've got in my brain, Gerard. Uh, you heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I'm, I'm going to, uh, do my good homework and, and read the report, but you give me a little bit of hope because I am generally pessimistic about these things, but I do think that anything, uh, when it comes to education that comes from an accountability office, uh, that being a key, a key phrase is important and it plays a really important role in keeping us honest about, um, about what boxes we are checking or failing to check for our kids. So we'll keep our eye on that. Um, Gerard, as I mentioned at the outset, we're recording this the day after the Martin Luther King Jr. uh, federal holiday. And excited to have up, um, scholar, writer Taylor Branch is going to be talking to us. Um, I'm looking forward to what I think is going to be a pretty fascinating conversation, uh, with somebody who's a real expert on the history of the civil rights movement and, uh, and possibly can talk a little bit about connections to the current moment. So, right after this, <music> learning curve listeners, we are back with Taylor Branch. Taylor Branch is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best known for his landmark trilogy on the civil rights era, America in the King Years. The trilogy includes Parting the Waters, Pillar of Fire, and At Canaan's Edge. His most recent book is The King Years, Historic Moments in the Civil Rights Movement. In 2009, Branch wrote The Clinton Tapes, Wrestling History with the President, Branch began his career in 1970 as a staff journalist for the Washington Monthly, Harper's, and Esquire. He holds honorary doctoral degrees from 10 colleges and universities. Other citations include the Dayton Literary Peace Prize Lifetime Achievement Award in 2008 and the National Humanities Medal in 1999. Mr. Branch is currently writing a book about the influence of race on American politics and history since the 1600s. He lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and we're very excited to have him with us here today. Taylor Branch, we're so lucky to have you with us on The Learning Curve this day, the day after, we're recording this the day after Martin Luther King Day. Welcome.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, um, we've we've got a lot to talk about, and I'm sure that you, like I hope most Americans, did spent at least a little bit of time yesterday um, reflecting, especially since many of us are still holed up in our homes, <laughs> reflecting on on what the day meant and why it is that we remember um, Martin Luther King Jr. on this special day. Um, I sit here in Boston. I am an alum of Boston University, of course, where Dr. King uh, did his doctoral work, um, and um, we we have a lot to learn from you today. So so let's get started. Um, My first question for you is about the Reverend King and other leaders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, also known as the SCLC. They were Baptist ministers committed, committed, as many people know, to nonviolent protest in what they called soul force. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about how Dr. King was able to use terms like, equal souls and equal votes to bridge church and state issues specifically, because he did this while trying to provide larger spiritual and political leadership, which is something that's pretty fascinating. Could you elaborate for us?
2: Surely. Um, you know, doc, Dr. King was struggling uphill um, at, at a time when uh, Black people in America were largely invisible. Uh, they didn't have m- very many assets. Uh, to to establish justice um, in, in in American society, and so he reached as deeply as possible uh, into the underpinnings of American belief, both spiritual and civic, uh, which was why one of his distinctive gifts was to put one foot in the scripture and one foot in the uh, Constitution uh, to to say that equal votes and equal souls, either way. Um, the cause of treating people equally and giving people justice um, uh, 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 appeal to the best in American traditions. There, people commonly sidestepped that and thought of Dr. King as a troublemaker or somebody, uh, quite frankly, who uh, was involved with esoteric um, nonviolent tactics um, attributed to Gandhians and, you know, vegetarians and people who didn't want to kill insects, that it was exotic and strange. And Dr. King, um, one of his gifts was to say, if you believe in votes, you believe in nonviolence because that's all a vote is, is a piece of nonviolence. And to most of the world, it was and still is preposterous that a piece of paper could be stronger than a bullet or a sword. But that's the whole pr- promise of America. Uh, tested um, two weeks ago uh, when the Capitol was stormed, everybody realized that if you it, if if votes don't hold, chaos is next because everything will be decided by you know coups and militias and um, the, the kind of uh, uncivilized uh, uh, chaos that has plagued all of human history. So. Dr. King laid claim to the very premise of America itself that the founding fathers, when they wrote the Constitution, the whole notion was, how can we make votes, design a system around votes that can take the place of kings and armies uh, that have governed all of um, previous American history so Nonviolence was something very profound that Dr. King tried to show Americans time after time, this is part of your tradition. Don't bounce off of it. Don't think this is something exotic and strange. Uh, And one of the sad things about race relations is that people were very clever at at, at figuring out ways to dodge the emotional, political, and philosophical force of the message Dr. King was offering.
0: That's really helpful. Thank you. Especially as I think, um, you know, this, this thread about voting, which certainly, uh, the discussion this just this entire year around how to vote and get out the vote, and what counts as a vote is so important. And to bring us back to to remembering um, how Dr. King approached this important civic exercise um, is, is a great reminder, especially as so many of us. And I know Gerard and I included last week, you know, struggling through some of what. Um, what recent events mean for this country, for where we've been, and for and for where we go. Um, I, I want to pick up on something that you talk about in your trilogy, America and the King Years, because you know we often think today we we celebrate Martin Martin Luther King. Um, only once a year, we should probably celebrate him more often than that, as well as the the many who who um, rallied around him and who he affected. But you note at various times during your triv- your trilogy that there were different times at which it was perceived that Dr. King was leading the civil rights movement and that the SL- SCLC were leading. So. So it's, it could be confusing for some to figure out what the balance of of power or even shared leadership was there. Could you talk a little bit for our listeners who might not completely understand the role of the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as well as lesser known figures like Bob Mo- Bob Moses and his work in voter registration?
2: Gladly. You know, Bob Moses is right there in Cambridge. Um, um near you and i think he's mm-hmm. a figure of almost equal status of dr king and it's a great tragedy to show how we still don't appreciate our history that he's he's not more of a household figure being consulted um uh, uh, about the enduring problems of race and racial justice today um the the, the civil rights movement was new it was trying to um established justice for a, a marginalized and largely uh, invisible people uh, who had been that way for centuries. And um, new groups were formed because they had to do new things. The old existing groups tended to want to do what they had always done, and therefore they resisted new tactics, whether it was sit-ins, freedom rides, um, mass marches, the March on Washington, all of those um were beyond the taste of the established groups who wanted to rely on lawsuits uh or education or or slow reform or or even simply the wheels of time you know this problem will take care of itself don't make waves um so there were a number of different groups Dr King's was uh, largely church based saying that nonviolent witness had a basis in the church i mean um uh, Jesus and the Christian movement, the early Christian martyrs were nothing if not uh, disciples of nonviolence. Um, whereas the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, it, it had a number of uh, religious um, figures leading it too, but those young people were more interested in the civic side of nonviolence, the, the rights of a citizen, uh, the rights of every ordinary citizen. And they took the lead, quite frankly, from the sit-ins and the freedom rides up until Birmingham, uh, you know, Dr. King was persecuted. He was he was sued. He was arrested. He was put in jail um, just for his speeches. And he he didn't go on the Freedom Rides. He resisted the kind of um, witness that young people made, um, starting with the sit-ins in 1960, uh, by finding ways to go beyond words. Um, to Dr. King's credit, he recognized from the very beginning that some things in human nature are are beyond the power of even gifted oratory, and he couldn't preach America out of segregation, and that the sit-ins amplified the, that message with sacrifice and drama. Uh, nothing more dr- dramatic than, than, the, than the Freedom Rides in 1961, when Attorney General Kennedy uh, labored for 48 hours just to get one sec- unsegregated bus out of the Birmingham bus station. Uh, the whole country was watching, um, so those are big dramas that 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 show people how deeply uh, prejudice went. Um, so there were a number of different groups um, uh, contending by different message messages and means to to, to make witness uh, for for changing the way America uh, dealt with uh, race relations.
0: I'm really curious, especially with the the work that you're doing on your current book and watching some of the, the protests of the past year. Um, what what were your observations as, as you lived through these moments, especially as we were all locked in our homes due to the pandemic? What 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 brought to mind for you, um, you know, in terms of what you've been thinking about what you're currently writing and what you've written in the past?
2: Well the Black Lives Matter um, movement in the in the past few years uh, brings the Civil rights era to mind um, for, for a lot of people by way of comparison. Uh, I think um, on the positive side, it, it, the Black Lives Matter movement got very quickly to the level of interracial involvement of people from all different kinds, not just white people but uh, immigrants and and um, Hispanics, Latinos, um Native Americans, there were lots of people who saw the parallels and who joined in Black Lives Matter protests. Um, the Civil Rights Movement didn't get that level of interracial involvement until probably Selma uh, or, or, or Freedom Summer, uh, when you got large numbers of white college students going to Mississippi in the summer of 1964, but that's four years into the struggle. So I think the Black Lives Matter movements started ahead of the civil rights movement, by way of uh, comparison, as far as the cross cross racial uh, nature of it, uh, which is good. On the other hand, I don't think that that the movements so far have had the conscious message um, about nonviolence and about the purpose and about what, what, where they were going. Uh, the message wasn't as prominent or as clear. Um, the, the, you know, there were there was controversy between King and the students back in the civil rights movement because the students thought they did most of the jail going and the suffering, and King got most of the press coverage. Um, and and so there was friction about that, but it was it was an instructive fr- friction. They they both. Uh, appreciated the the importance of the other side uh king's message was really important in that um stability that he gave it um to give it both a spiritual and a civic base and and to make clear that uh that nonviolence was the rudder uh that it was a patriotic rudder and a and a spiritual rudder uh for the movement uh that message uh was valuable so i would i would say that black lives matter is behind on the message and ahead maybe on the uh, on the coalition uh aspects of a uh, mass protest
0: you know so you mentioned that that kings um oratory had both a a spiritual and a civic base. And I'd I'd love for you to expand about that a little bit, because of course here in the learning curve, we, we think a lot about issues in education and what, what is, is not happening in civics education and history education. And it's pretty clear that Dr. King used the liberal arts and his own historical, his deep historical knowledge to articulate his vision, um, for, for America. Can you talk a little bit about that influence?
2: Yeah, I'm a. To be honest, I'm afraid that his message was too sophisticated for most Americans um, at the time, because he was saying, you know, most people like to talk a little bit about Gandhi then and say that he was a disciple of Gandhi, uh, and they would say that nonviolence was basically uh, Jesus turning the other cheek. But if you listen to what Dr. King said in his sermons, I don't care everywhere. It, he said that nonviolence was central uh, to democracy, the promise of um, our whole architecture of a civil society that was built around votes. He said nonviolence is what made democracy self-renewing and creative, that that you could adapt if you were if you were as long as you had the discipline and the self-governance to be um building public trust through votes. Um, uh, y- 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 you could renew um, um y- y- your democratic promise. And so he he was very explicit about that and and, and about the potential that it had for surprise healing. I and mean, he said very early on that the chief benefit one of the chief beneficiaries of the nonviolent movement to end segregation would be white Southerners because they were imprisoned economically and psychologically in segregation. Uh, it was the poorest region of the country uh didn't even have any professional sports teams <laughs> because there was a stigma uh around it and and sure enough he he said that when black people uh won their freedom uh the liberation would would spread to the people who were resisting it most vociferously so he was very um eclectic and i think profound as a civic thinker um and conscious of the fact that the movement was trying to do uh, something analogous to what the original founders did in m- moving uh, the country from uh, from hierarchy b- based on violence and and, and um uh, and, and orders to to the self-governing experiment that we had so um that that's an overlooked part of Dr. King that you know I've been laboring to <laughs> try to rectify it because he didn't hide it. It's just that we weren't ready for it.
1: As you're talking about young people and their role in the civil rights movement, I think about Ruby Bridges uh, being guarded by U.S. Marshals while desegregating Mm -hmm. New Orleans public schools in 1960. In fact, I just purchased two copies of her book uh, that I gave to my two youngest daughters. And then, of Mm -hmm. course, we know about Bull Connor in Birmingham, the bombing of the Sixth Street Baptist Church in 1963 that killed four girls. When we talk about civil rights, and you mentioned uh, Black Lives Matter, there's a wide swath of both, you know, older people, let's say mature people, those in the middle, and college students. But in the civil rights movement of the King era, you know, there were a lot of school-aged children. You know, what role do they play in the success of the movement, and how should I wish? How should we talk about school children today and those historical events?
2: Wow. Well, that is a great question. It's huge. It's something that I think about all the time. I have a chapter in Parting the Waters called The Children's Miracle, Mm -hmm. uh, in which I argue that those demonstrations in May, in the first week of May, 1963, were the fulcrum that changed American history, um, because Birmingham was uh, uh, about to um, fail uh, as King's great experiment to tackle segregation. He had gone to jail. He wrote the letter from Birmingham Jail, Um, people today fool themselves to think that that really started the debate. Um, Nobody paid the slightest attention to it uh, until he took the greatest risk of his career and allowed not just high school students, but down to six-year-olds to march um, to jail in in Birmingham. Uh, I mean, they went from, I think they had a dozen adults who were so traumatized by Bull Connor's jail that he couldn't get any adults to keep going after a month, um, and uh, as a great risk, the alternative to surrender, uh, they uh, agreed to one day on May 2nd to allow teenagers to go, and and little kids crowded right in with them, uh, and uh, it converted first. The parents who were horrified they they actually were furious with King leaving their their children with criminal records. But when they saw the children marching, they got converted and and started marching along beside them and instead of only twelve adults going to jail, six hundred kids went to jail the first day and three thousand in the next few days and that's what changed America I mean everybody um most people today uh I, even young people had probably seen pictures of the dogs and fire hoses in Birmingham and they, and they feel the visceral effect of that. Um, um, but w- we don't really think about how, what it meant that that was the turning point. That was when most of America went well, all around the world and most Americans who had been kind of dodging civil rights and saying somebody should do about it, something about it, or, um, like me, I was growing up in Atlanta. I said, when I get really old, like 30, maybe I'll do something. But when I saw the 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 the, the kids marching, uh, it breaks down your emotional resistance, and uh, it really it set loose um, demonstrations in almost 200 cities in the next few um, next few weeks. That's what forced President Kennedy to inter- introduce the civil rights bill. Uh, it really was the catalyst. I liken it almost to Passover in the Bible (laughs) where, um, you know, small children uh, in the parables uh, uh, changed, uh, scared Pharaoh, you know, what happened. Um, So it's a very, very big deal. And yet you cannot find uh, in all the scholarship. Today, any analysis of how it came to be that what small black school children did and was done to them was a turning point for American history that, that literally turned the South from predominantly Democratic to predominantly Republican. Um it let loose the strongest subliminal force in our politics in reaction to what happened there, uh, led to the civil rights movement. But it's not something that we're conscious of. We you can see PhD dissertations written all the time on some marginal change in an attack ad that might affect a a Senate seat or two. Um, But you don't see people studying the effect of those marching small children. Um, Every single adult commentator at that time condemned King for using children. And And I don't mean just George Wallace. Bobby Kennedy did. Malcolm X did uh all scholars it's irresponsible it's crazy it's beyond the pale it's insane he shouldn't use children and yet that was the breakthrough for american history now that's a profound paradox that ought to be um analyzed but i think it's not precisely because it's embarrassing um to our pretense that we're really in control of uh, uh of race except for some problems out at the margin Uh, It exposed how deep it went and and how it was actually the really personal revulsion uh, and the courage of those small children that uh, melted Americans uh, resistance. So those children's marches are are really important uh, in American history. And I don't think it's any accident that a lot of the Black Lives Matter fervor has also been over the shootings and sufferings uh, of young people like Tamir Rice in Cleveland.
1: When you tell this story, it immediately reminded me of the role that children played uh, in the Soweto uprisings in South Africa, mm-hmm. and what role that played in pushing the idea of apartheid, and what impact, in fact, it had on congressional Black Caucus members in the United States, Iran Dullums, uh, Randall Robinson, and Trans Africa, and what role that played in not only pushing South African politics but galvanizing the politics of the civil rights movement here in the US. And so it's often good to look at the the transatlantic piece. Since you brought that up, do we know much about the the background of the children who participated? Were they children of the laborers, uh, the working class? Were they the children of the middle class? Or was it a mix? Or do we know?
2: We don't know as much as we'd like. Uh <laughs> I okay. tried to get the Birmingham Museum to, to do an oral history project to try to get in touch with as many of those kids as possible. Um uh the most famous one I know, Freeman is president of uh uh of Baltimore um University um, of Maryland.
1: Bal- yes.
2: I didn't know he was here, part in, of it. here in Baltimore. He he went to jail as a twelve year old. Um okay. And he was a, he was from a middle class family, but most of the middle class families' children uh, didn't do it. In fact, a great irony for me, Dr. King stayed with a middle class family. His friends, John and Deanie drew uh, for the months that he was in Birmingham for these protests. And they got so upset uh, at the very rumors that what they said, his, his lunatic staff were going to put kids to jail that they sent their son off to boarding school. <laughs> just so that he wouldn't be there. They wow. were wealthy enough to do that. Um, they reached out um, uh, to ordinary kids, um, uh, not, not the, the, the children of school principals and that sort of thing. It was more the working class kids. Uh, their contacts to get them to come to the meetings and consider whether or not they would join. They had a separate meeting for young people And they reached out by literally going to the schools to um, the most famous example for me is that they went to Miss Parker High School. (laughs) She had just been elected Miss Parker High School, one of the black schools there. And and they recruited her and and basketball players. And eventually they recruited the black DJs on black radio stations uh, to be for this. And they made it cool to go to these youth sessions, which vastly outnumbered the adult ones. Um, and, um, and they did nonviolent training and, and, and said, they basically challenged the kids to, um, to be able to do something that, that their, that their parents couldn't. Um, so yeah, it was a remarkable social movement. We don't know that much about it. Uh, um, um, and, and just as it was in South Africa, the reason I think these things are so poignant, um, is because... All adults, we we profess ourselves to care most about our children and and to do anything about our children, but in reality, uh, you know, kids often get the short shrift. There's a reason that pediatricians are the lowest paid doctors. Um, uh and something like this really exposes the gap between what we say our values are and 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 what they really are and that's why i think that that the demonstrations by the the kids even younger than than the sit-in students and the and the and the um and the freedom ride kids um um, really um, move people in, in, in a way, but they didn't really want to talk about it because it it, it contradicts all our professions of how 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 devoted we, what we'll do for our kids. It, it just challenged people to put up or shut up.
1: One of the great things about having people like you on the learning curve is that we're always learning. And so I've got some homework I need to do, in particular for uh, Dr. Freeman. Uh, He's always someone I said should be on the top five list for U.S. Secretary of Education, uh, based upon all the wonderful things that he's done, but was unaware about uh, his arrest at 12. So got some homework. Let me go to my second question. Another group of people often overlooked in the civil rights movement, and that's women. Uh, We look at September Clark, Ella Baker, Rosa Parks, Fang Lou Hamer, Diane Nash, some of the women you've mentioned. Um, we know them, but we don't often talk about how central they were to the movement. Could you talk about the tensions between male and female leaders within the movement and what parents, uh, history teachers, schools can do to ensure that women are given full credit and honor in the success and the gains of the civil rights movement?
2: Well, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, um, I think we need to have some historical Perspective about it to 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 realize and admit um, people don't like to admit how how much things have changed uh, when it's good sometimes. I mean, um, at the March on Washington in 1963, they made the women march down Independence Avenue um, and there were no female speakers. And that was just accepted. And uh, women couldn't even go into the press conferences at the National Press Club before the march because they didn't allow women in. So, um, and, you know, n- male dominance was was just an accepted part, not only of law, but of custom uh, back then. I went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and the only female students there were nursing students, by and large. The, the student body was 5%. It was basically, by state law, a school for gentlemen. Um, and that's not that long ago. I mean, I'm... <laughs> I, I'm pretty old, but this is in the 1960s. And um, so women were very, very subordinated in uh, American culture. All of the, the the professions, uh, the political uh, offices, um, the editing roles um, were, were occupied by men, and that was just taken for granted. The Civil Rights Movement was different in one respect um because it was a nonviolent movement uh, a nonviolent army can have women uh, as generals <laughs> and that was one of the things they advertised uh, uh about it uh, beginning in Jim Lawson's nonviolent workshops uh, in Nashville in the late 1950s uh, it was out of those workshops that that we got John Lewis and Diane Nash and Marion Barry and Jim Bevel, and Bernard Lafayette, and on and on. It was by far the most disciplined cadre of of, of nonviolence, but it was distinctive right at the beginning because uh, Jim Lawson said, in, in a nonviolent army, women can be served fully from privates to generals. And um, Diane Nash was certainly one of the leaders. And in fact, she uh, went on, in my view, to... Um, to initiate a lot of the historic changes that expanded the identity of the civil rights movement from something that started off where they couldn't think beyond their own campus, just trying to do demonstrations to desegregate a lunch counter or a movie theater or the public library in your own town was more than uh, people could, uh, could handle. And she said, we need to go into other cities if necessary. She went to jail in South Carolina. Uh, when she was supposed to be leading um, not, uh, demonstrations at Fisk University. And then when the first adult Freedom Riders were um, gave up uh, after violence in Birmingham, she interrupted a picnic in Nashville and said, we have to go take their place, um, which drastically expanded the identity of people saying that this is a national movement. Um, and then, of course, she and her husband were the main ones pushing Dr. King to use teenagers. They were the ones running those uh, youth uh, meetings in Birmingham. Uh, and when the little girls were bombed in um, in the same church out of which those kids came a few months later, um, Diane Nash conceived what became Selma uh, as an answer to that heinous crime. She went down to went down to Birmingham on the bus. Um, She was off in another movement and confronted Dr. King and said, a nonviolent movement has to have a plan to give people something to do on the scale of how heinous this crime was. And we need to immobilize Alabama until it gives black people the right to vote. So um, she conceived what became Selma and badgered Dr. King into doing it. So... um, Yes, a lot of them, uh, there are women who played uh, enormously significant roles in the civil rights movement, but um, just in the everyday movement, I think (laughs) most of them would agree that the movement ran on women uh, everywhere except where there was a microphone. Um, That When there was a microphone, the men tended to take the microphones and be the spokespeople so that uh, women were doing the work behind the scenes, Um, which, of course, wasn't that much different than the way black churches ran, you know. Um, uh, women really ran black churches, and 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 it, and it kind of came naturally uh, to um, to a political movement like the civil rights movement. Except that nonviolence itself opened up all these avenues for women uh, that that weren't open in in ordinary society.
1: Absolutely. One woman who comes to mind for me is uh, Joanne Robinson. At one time, Joanne Gibson, and she's got a wonderful book. It's a memoir uh, called Montgomery Bus Boycott and the Women Who Started It. And (laughs) I read that book some years ago, and just she put into place how King arrived, who he was. But yes, it was the women who started this. The man later uh, took the claim for it. So it falls in line with some of the great things that you've said thus far.
2: I went to see her. She was a wonderful. She was a wonderful lady. She was a teacher at the school, um, and she would have been fired if if they they had found out that she ran off all of the first leaflets calling on uh, people to boycott in Montgomery on a mimeograph machine at the college library. Um, but uh, she knew she'd be fired uh, if, if it became known.
1: Absolutely. Do you mind reading a passage from your book, one of your choice?
2: Um no, not at all. Um I picked out one. Um it it, it needs a little setup because of all people is from Lyndon Johnson. Um and when he was vice president uh and totally ignored and nobody knew anything about him. But after those children's marches in Birmingham and the demonstrations were breaking out all over the country, uh everywhere. A uh, thousand arrested in Durham, North Carolina, 600 in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, on and on. The Kennedy administration panicked and they called Johnson in and set a tape recorder down and ordered him to give his advice about what to do. Um, and this is a quote. From his advice about because he said that the Kennedy people were burning the midnight oil, staying up all night, trying to make deals between segregationists and black people and demonstrations across the uh, across the country. Um, So he said, um, this won't work. The whites think we're just playing politics to carry New York. The Negroes feel they're suspicious that we're just doing what we've got to do. Until that's laid to rest, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to have a solution. Um, He said every cruel and evil influence in this country, plus all the uninformed, plus all the people that got a wounded heir and a persecution complex, are going to be unified against the president. That oughtn't to be. You need to stand up and almost make a bigot out of nearly anybody that's against the president by putting the presidency on high moral ground. If I can do it, the president can sure do it. Right now you've got me, I'm a pop gun. You need the big cannon of the president. So he's basically saying that President Kennedy, that they needed to stop that by, what they did by trying to solve things behind the scenes through negotiation was merely to advertise how skittish they were and that you needed to be forthright. And um, so that's just a little passage from from that tape recorder that the uh, Kennedy administration imposed on this uh, lonely and obscure uh, vice president that everybody assumed was just an everyday segregationist but turned out to be um, the best civil rights president we've had.
0: Well, Taylor Branch, thank you so much. What a, what a pleasure to spend this time learning from you. I, I know I speak for both of us when I say we have greatly enjoyed this conversation and no doubt our listeners will too. So, um, and best of luck on the new book. I'm going to give us an opportunity to have you back again.
2: Thank you. And uh, thanks to all your podcast listeners.
0: And as always, listeners, we are going to close out this show with the tweet of the week. This one from the College Board. Important update. We will no longer offer SAT subject tests. International students can still take them in May and June. But then it also says we will also discontinue the optional SAT essay after the June 2021 2021, sorry, administration. So, I mean, man, not really surprised, sort of a big deal speaks to the current moment, I think, about, you know, how institutions of higher education are viewing these tests, which were once really sort of the sacred cow, I think. Um, I can tell you that I have a yeah, I'm almost ashamed to admit a 10 year old who's sort of obsessed with college right now and and always talking about it and worrying about the SAT. I'm going to tell her she has one less thing to worry about. Um, as somebody who has taken subject tests and also used to in a former life, uh, help folks grade standardized essays off of rubrics. Um, this is, this is really interesting news because these things are, um, are not only falling out of favor with many institutions of higher education, but really difficult sometimes to make meaning of. Uh, Gerard, are you surprised by this news?
1: No. Um, I'm just wondering what will schools use in place of that to make decisions? Now, I know that over 800 schools have already decided not to use um, SAT or ACT in admission. So that part isn't new. Uh, I did not read the story. So there's a lot I don't know. Not surprised, but uh, hopefully this just isn't another wink toward um, Black people somehow can't seem to pass tests and therefore we should remove some things in order for them to catch up when, in fact, I know a lot of Black people, some I went to school with, some I did not. Uh, who did very well, uh, but also know people who did not do well and uh, were not let in and found other ways of ultimately finding themselves in the same institution. So I think there's something there academically. I mean, I know David and his team uh, care a lot about equity and justice. So that's a part that I'm not questioning. Uh, I'm just putting this in the broader context, even in a conversation I believe we had on our show in passing about a teacher, a professor who said that math is racist. Uh, And therefore, we should get rid of it, Uh, even though, again, I've got friends of mine who have degrees in mathematics who are very black. So,
0: Uh, yeah, talk to Lisa Delpit about that. (laughs) (laughs) What's her great book? Um, Uh,
1: other people's children
0: other people's children and there's also the one about multiplication isn't for black kids or something like that Uh, I am behind on my reading I'm not oh she's amazing I bet a lot of folks are going to know Jamie we'll have to make a note to have her on the show too but your point is well taken Gerard and we're going to see where this story unfolds over time all right until then, next week, we are going to be speaking with Justice Clint Bollock, and he is, uh, as you know, he serves in the Arizona Supreme Court, but also just someone who has written and thought extensively about um, school choice in this country, about educational opportunity for all kids. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation, someone that um, that I've admired for a really long time. So until then, Gerard, I will will I wish you a a peaceful inauguration day, a wonderful week and look forward to reconnecting uh, next week. So do I. Take care.
1: Take care.